All right, I'm going to ask you to open to Romans chapter 1. Once again this morning, Romans chapter 1. It's a fearful chapter, but it's such a necessary piece of the whole doctrinal pie of the, of the Christian faith, if you will. So I'm going to ask you to turn there this morning. I'm going to backtrack a little. I'm going to go back to the very beginning, and I'm going to read the first 12 verses, I think, will serve us well today. So I'm going to read the first 12 verses once again. I know I traveled here just a few weeks ago, but it came to me this week there was a few more things that I thought I should say. So Romans chapter 1. So Paul writes, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Does your Bible say bond slave? It may say that. Don't worry. They mean the same thing. A bondservant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith of both you and me. Amen. O Father, in Jesus' name, let us receive the blessing of this, your devoted servant, O Lord, and let us receive it anew again this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so Paul was called, or at least he says he was called, and you were called, at least he says you were called, and then he goes on and says all the saints were called. We were all called by the same God, And we were called to one purpose and at the same time to different purposes. We don't all have the same ministry. There's one God, he said to the Ephesians, but the same ministry, right? And so Paul this morning, I've entitled the sermon, Paul. I want to go back into it and look at this man who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. I think it behooves us to familiarize ourselves with the person of Paul somewhat this morning. And so Paul, the great apostle, gives his salutation. I am Paul, I am a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Not ashamed to be a slave of another man, so long as that man is Jesus Christ. And try to remember, as we go through this little biography of Paul this morning, that Paul was born a free citizen. He was no one's slave. He was born a Roman free citizen. We don't know quite how that happened because he's a Hebrew of Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin, According to zeal, he persecuted to the, the church, and according to the word of God, he was a Pharisee. He's as Jewish as you could be. So we don't know quite how he gained his citizenship, although it is conjectured that Paul's father bought citizenship 
You could buy it in those days. You can still do that in countries that care how many people come in. You can still buy citizenship. Oh, you're allowed to laugh. You know, we're allowed to have a little political humor. But before we leave chapter 1, I thought we should get a closer look at the person of Paul the Apostle. These are fantastic claims. This is a man who's claiming to say to you things that God said to him. And he's claiming they are inerrant. That means without error. He's claiming that they are inspired. That means God breathed into his heart before he penned them. And we're claiming to have faith in that very thing. And to believe that this is the word of God. Not because Paul says it only, but for various other reasons which I'd like to look into this morning. So before we leave chapter 1, I'm going to look into this person of Paul with you this morning, and perhaps if we can, to answer some questions as to his qualifications. It's one thing to claim qualifications. It's another thing to really have them and have them be demonstrated. So what are his qualifications to speak authoritatively as he does on matters so essential to the Christian church? If it's true, friends, if he is called of the one and only God, if his word is inerrant, if he wrote it down under the inspiration of God himself, the Holy Spirit, then what a treasure it is that we have it before us in written form. Friends, I love the word of God. I had an old friend, (laughs) he was an American Indian, called himself Straight Arrow, remember him? And he used to come and he had this ministry to the church. His name was Tim Patterson. He stayed with us. And by the way, he's the one that first taught me how to throw hatchets, and I'm still pretty darn good at it. Arms feeling good, too. But Tim, he'd come, and he'd come in his buckskins, you know, and he'd have the tassels, and he'd come, and he'd stand up, and every night, because he was really there for the kids' ministry, but this was a real minister, and he'd hold his book, and when Ken would ask him to preach, he'd say, I love to handle the Word of God. I'm going to handle the Word of God this morning, he'd say, and I always felt that way. I'll never be a totally online guy like books. I see some of you guys reading the scriptures on your phones. You'll never, well, I mean, I do that. I have ready access for that. But from the pulpit, it's always going to be the book. There's just something about the book that interests me. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I'm thinking whether or not to use a Star Trek reference, but I'm going to, I'm going to forget it this morning. When books are out of style, but, but Captain Kirk had a lawyer that was still into books, and he talked about knowing all the law, and he looked on the shelf, and of course, this is many thousand years in the future, uh, hundreds of years in the future, and he looked on the shelf, and the first book he mentioned was Moses. The books of Moses, the Torah, because he was a lawyer. Um, books will be on my shelves long after they're out of style, when paper is a thing of the past. Um, hopefully not all paper. But, um, friends, no one who studies theology would put the book of Romans any lower than first place with regard to its importance to the doctrinal foundations of Christianity. Friends, if you had one copy of one gospel and the book of Romans, you'd have enough. But praise God, we have all the books. They didn't in the first century. The people that this letter was read to when it came to Rome probably never heard of the letter to the Ephesians or the Galatians, maybe not even the gospels themselves. They might have been orally transmitted. you got to remember, it isn't like you could just print books like you do today. But no one who studies theology would put Romans any lower than first place with regard to the doctrinal foundations of the church. What are the things that we believe? Friends, it's absolutely essential that we answer that question for a couple of reasons. One, to find out if we belong here. 
to find out if we belong to Him. Friends, to find out if we belong in heaven or in hell. Your eternity is based on what you believe and what you know about what you believe. Friends, let me tell you, the name of Jesus, we like to talk about the name of Jesus, hallelujah. There was a lot of Jesuses in the first century. There's four in your New Testament. Test me on that, all right? It's the same as the name Joshua. I have a great-grandfather named Jesus. The Italians called him Gesù. How many Hispanic young men do you know whose name is Jesus, right? No, the name of Jesus, it has to be the Jesus. There's no magic in naming your kid Jesus or Jesu. So we have to know who he is. We have to locate him in history. He's the one, remember, that was born without a human father, for one thing. And Paul, in the book of Romans, gets into all of these issues for us and with us. And so we would all agree that the book is fundamental, friends. It's first place. It's authoritative with regard to the things we all believe. And so our view of the text as primary can only be augmented by our view of its author as a primary source, receiving his calling and his revelation directly from God. Now I know all you smart people are going to jump up and say, he's not the author, God is the author, so I'm going to fix it, okay? Rightly stated, the author of the book, as is the case with all Scripture, is God, the Holy Spirit. And so his credentials are unimpeachable. In other words, if it can be demonstrated that this truly is God's Word, who are you to not believe it? But what of his choice to write the book? You know, we don't have the gospel according to Jesus. I mean... MacArthur wrote a book by that name, but uh, we don't have the fifth gospel that Jesus wrote. We don't have any epistles that Jesus wrote, although he did come to John on Patmos and came right out, and, but, he, but once again, he didn't write anything down. He said to John, write this down, right? And I say it that way because we used to have an audio tape of it, and, they, and that's the voice they used for Jesus. <laughs> write these things down. <clears throat> I always thought most Jewish people were tenors, but apparently the baritones... Um, But rightly stated, the author of the book is God, and the writer of the book is the man. But friends, the man doesn't get swallowed up. His personality doesn't disappear. All that he is and all that he's learned. Friends, you know, i got to tell you something. I I look back at my life preparing me for ministry long before I knew anything about um, the Lord, long before I had any respect for any of you religious people. um, God was preparing me. Now, you see these things that you have before you, the notes, right? You see them? That's, that's six full single-space pages every week. I used to do four. I think my expositional ability has waned, so I write more down. I, I do less thinking on the spot, on my feet. Maybe it's an age thing. I don't know. Um, maybe I just have more to say in my old age. But, friends, who do you think types that? I type it. I, you know, before computers came out, I was a typist, baby. I don't know why, but I took a course in college on typing, and I learned it and never forgot it. I do 60 words a minute. That's not much if you're a secretary, but if you're a carpenter, it's pretty good. You know? I always say, Karen wants to give me these little laptops. When we go on vacation, I've got to write on the laptop. Fit the, little fing- fit the big sausage fingers into the little things. I'd say, get me a big you know, keyboard so I can do it. Same on the piano. Spread those keys out. Friends, our religion is a religion of dualities, isn't it? Just as our Savior is human and divine, just as the church is human and divine, friends, the church is human. 
right? But the Holy Spirit promises to make his home here, all right? And that means corporately and individually. So the church is human and divine. Friends, you're human and divine. The Holy Spirit is in you if you have faith in Christ. He's promised to make his dwelling there. 1 Corinthians 6, he said, Do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Right? And certainly the written word is human and divine. It's God's thoughts. It's men's effort. It's ink and parchment or vellum in the old days. Vellum was veal, by the way. Um, And we should note that though the Spirit of God authors every thought penned by the evangelist or the apostle, the credentials and the life experiences and the personality of the writer is always evident in the final product. So Paul could say to the Thessalonians, we thank God without ceasing because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of mere men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. Friends, I don't know why God chose men to spread his message. I would have done it differently. But you should all be happy that I'm not God. I might have given it to angels. And, and they did a little bit of that in the beginning. Remember Gabriel came and he told them what to do and told Joseph what to do and told Mary what to do and all of that. But ultimately speaking, we get the word of God from certain men. And so there has to be some other evidence that it comes from God. I mean, how many men of people have you known about or heard about through your life that come out and say, oh, the Lord told me this, hallelujah. I remember one time Ken used to tell a story about these young, faithful zealots in the church. You always had a few firebrands in those days, and they came out. And Ken was a, you know, a man of some wealth, and people would come to him all the time with great things that he ought to invest in. Poor rich people have to deal with that, Right? And they say, no, we're going to start this little community up in New Hampshire, and we're going, to, we're going to buy some land, and we're going to set up shop up there, and we're going to you know, train people for ministry and all this. All we need is, is $5,000, and we're coming to you because the Lord sent us and told you to give us $5,000. And Ken said, great, that's a great idea. Just tell the Lord to tell me, and you'll get the five grand. LAUGHTER We would all say that Jeremiah writes with his own personal flair. Have you read Jeremiah, the weeping prophet? He's got his own personal flair. If you're familiar with the prophets, you wouldn't mix one up from the other. His writing could hardly be confused with David, who sings songs and plays the harp, right? Or Solomon's, who wrote the Proverbs, or Luke's. You wouldn't mix them up. Peter writes with his own sense of personal humility. You ever notice how humble Peter is in his epistles? His own empathy with the reader, with their trials. He writes to the pilgrims of the diaspora. John, too, writes with his own distinct distinct sense of self. You read those three epistles of John, and you know that John's and not Paul's. So we have the Pauline writings. We have the Petrine writings. We have the Joannine writings. Those are the writings of John. And Mark and, and Lucan and, and all of that. And we turn their names into adjectives because there's a certain style that the man himself brings to the finished product which is the word of God in written form. It's an amazing thing. It's an outlandish claim. And so the writer doesn't become lost in the process. He's there in the process with God. That's how God works through us. And so Paul writes with his own sense of power and presence and authority and witness. And he even says, you said I was meek in person, but don't let me come with the rod and show you how I can be. He has the authority of an apostle, and I'm going to labor that with you some to some degree this morning. 
And so before we continue in our course on Romans, before we even finish with Romans 1, I would like to use this time to establish a few foundational truths with regard to certain essential facts of Scripture and scriptural tradition. So I'm going to start with Paul. He makes some outlandish claims about himself with regard to the fact and of the importance of his calling. And isn't it interesting? He hadn't been to Rome yet. He says, I'm praying that I can get there. So you got this stranger somewhere else writing to you. He's, he's putting his approval, his endorsement on your project, calling it a true church. It was done without his, without his personal help. There may have been some disciples of his there. We talked about Priscilla and Aquila, right? And they may have founded the church. We don't know who founded it. And Rome was a metropolitan city of, a, I believe, about three million in that day. It was, was a gigantic city of the time. And there could have been a number of Roman churches. But Paul wrote to this one where he knew, it, I don't know, some 20 people that he, that he greets personally at the end of the letter. Um, so he was affiliated with it, but never had been there. So you get this letter from this stranger. I've received a couple of epistles in my life. Um, I could tell you about one. I, I don't know. I, I write these notes so they can be found as, as litter around the countryside because there's 26 years worth of them. But someone picked one up one day and read it and had something to uh, rebuke me on and so sent me an anonymous letter telling me all the mistakes I made. I would have loved to have that obviously Catholic person in here with us so that I could go over it with her. Um, but they chose the uh, anonymous route. Um, so like I'm saying, I got an epistle to correct me, and I didn't accept it as authoritative. It didn't just show up. Epaphroditus didn't bring it on horseback, right? So I, I just thought, I wish the person came in person to rebuke me, and maybe I'd have got them saved and taught them a little something. But we'll start with Paul's claim and then move on to his stated intention in writing to the churches. So first he has the claim, then he tells us why he wrote to the churches. He usually writes to the churches to correct something. Doesn't want us to go astray. Friends, if the doctrine deteriorates within us, the church will deteriorate. But guess what? That doesn't mean the chairs will be gone, or the mortgage won't be paid, or the people won't show up. There's a lot of places call themselves churches today. A lot of people showing up and nothing's going on. And the Holy Spirit had long absconded from there, and their lampstand was removed, right? And they don't know. They go merrily on their way, uh, trying to be good folks and know nothing about the doctrines that define God's household, the church. And that's what Romans is. So Paul says he's a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Now remember... It was Luke who first penned the account of Paul's conversion. Paul didn't pen the account of his own conversion. Luke did. So he wasn't really self-aggrandizing here, right? And I'm talking about Romans, I mean, uh, Acts chapter 9, the conversion of Paul on the road to Damascus. You ever notice that's become a cliche? People talk about the road to Damascus. Ever hear, ever hear um, pundits or news people say, I had my Damascus experience? They're not talking about getting saved. They're talking about coming to their new sense and understanding of their wonderful liberal theology that they, that they now believe. They had their road to Damascus experience. So they borrow these phrases from our Bible, right? But it was Luke who talked about Paul's conversion. So the apostle is not self-proclaimed only. 
he's proclaimed by no less authority than a gospel writer himself. Now, Luke was associated with Paul, associated with Peter, associated with some of the other apostles. You go to the book of Acts, there's two sections. There's the, there's the them section and there's the we sections. The we sections are when Luke finally caught up with them because, and he's writing more in the first person. He, he said, Paul and Barnabas did this, Peter and John did this, and then later on he says, and then we did this because he was actually with them. With them. So we should confront the question, first of all, what's an apostle, right? Are you an apostle? Am I an apostle? Is the Pope an apostle? A dictionary definition gives a fine first beginning. An apostle is a sent one. It's a messenger, just as an angel is a messenger. An evangelist is a messenger. Like Gabriel. Gabriel was a messenger. Stephen. Stephen was a messenger. Remember Stephen early on in the, uh, I think, chapter 6 of Acts? He got stoned for preaching his message. He wasn't an apostle, didn't claim to be. In fact, he was a deacon. He was a deacon in his church. Billy Graham never claimed to be an, an apostle, I don't think. Um, but he was a, a messenger. He brought a message. I don't claim to be an apostle. But none of these other men claim apostleship. But Paul does. It's a different thing then. All right? And I suggest to you that there's a very specific set of qualifications in order to, that a man may claim apostleship. Now, the word can be used generically and is on occasion or two in the scriptures used generically as, as just a, 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 a disciple or a, um, a messenger of some sort. But Paul isn't saying that. He's claiming to be part of a very elite club, which I believe, and I believe if you're rightly situated in scripture, you believe there are only 12 apostles then, now, and in eternity, and there will be no additions to that. That's my belief. I hope to ground that with you somewhat this morning. But a first consideration comes to us after the defection and death of Judas. That's when this whole thing came up, because now what? There's 11 apostles. There's only 11. Some reason they knew they had to fill that vacancy. So when the 11 gathered to replace him, they come up with a set of qualifications, all right? And they come up with two candidates. Go back to chapter 1 of Acts, and you'll find they come up with a man named Joseph and a man named Matthias, or Matthias, right? And... um, And so this is what it says. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied accompanied us all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, and one of these must become a witness with us of the resurrection. And that was their set of qualifications. So the surviving apostles set out to fulfill the vacancy. But what do they do? They cast lots. That's an old-fashioned rolling of the dice. Now, that's not entirely what it sounds like because there's so much precedent in the Old Testament for casting lots and for, remember the Urim and Thummim? Anyone remember the Urim and Thummim? They were like these divining stones that in Moses' time where they could, uh, that told them certain secrets and things. That sort of seems to go out of style in the Old Testament when the Shekinah glory comes in on them. But, um, and so they, they cast lots and they choose one of these two candidates. Joseph or Matthias, and they choose Matthias, and he's never heard from again. Just a point. So they never heard from him again. What they did establish that day, however, was a standard that a true apostle had to be a witness of the resurrected Christ. And that seems to have held because that's one of Paul's first claims. 
What they forgot, it seems to me, is that though they were given some very profound powers, specific powers that I'll talk about and delineate this morning, we are nowhere told that an apostle may be voted on, even by other apostles. Like we do in the church, we're going to choose a pastor or a deacon and we all vote. What, I, there's nowhere in Scripture that said this is a democratic process. You know, suppose 12 out of, out of 11, suppose 7 of them voted for, for Joseph and, and the other, how many left? Four voted for, um, for Matthias, then, then Joseph would be the apostle. I mean, it doesn't seem to make any biblical sense. I mean, let me tell you, heaven is not a democracy. I know you think God, democracy is God's gift to humanity, but it's really not. It's just another thing. Heaven's an autocracy, and there's a benevolent dictator in heaven. All right? It's a kingdom. So the apostles, it seems to me, did not realize, although they were well-intentioned, that they were not given the power to appoint each other. But they did have this, sta- this standard of seeing the resurrected Christ in person. Um, and so I should tell you that I reject the notion of some other denominations of the prospect of apostolic succession. You know what that is? That means down through the ages, the apostles were descendants of the original apostles and still maintained that office in the church. You know, you go into... Um, uh, the, the Mormon sect, the Mormon cult in the great temple there, and there's offices of the apostles of the Mormon faith. No, we're not going to set up a, um, an office in the church. We have the pastor's office, but we don't have the, the office of the local apostle, right? And so it's my belief that there is no apostolic succession. There are 12. There will remain only 12 throughout eternity. And the apostles are 12. Jesus said this very thing when he said, Did I not choose you the twelve? And one of you is a devil. Now, why he chose one devil, actually, technically it's demon. There's many demons in one devil. But the the, the King James does say devil. So the defector Judas was chosen of God for reasons of his own, right? Judas had his part to play. So a true apostle is not chosen by lots or by a democratic principle. He's chosen by God. Jesus said it. And so Luke verifies this very thing in his account of the conversion of Saul. Jesus said to Ananias about Saul. You remember how Ananias was brought in as the middleman? He was going to save Paul, but he also he went to a disciple, Ananias, and, and uh, God spoke to Ananias and said, I'm going to bring Saul of Tarsus to you. Oh, but he's a terrible man. He's persecuting the church. He goes, no, I have chosen him for my own purposes. And so this is what he said. Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine. This is Luke telling this, not Paul. He's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my sake. Remember that. Suffering for the sake of God is one of the qualifications of being an apostle. Remember what he told Peter at the end of the book of Acts? When you were young, you girded yourself and went when you wanted to go, but now that you're old, another will carry you where you do not wish to go. All right? And so an apostle's not only chosen, but he has to be called by God himself. There were many in those days claiming to be apostles. We read again from the words of Jesus to the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation. He said to John on Patmos about, he said to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes very succinctly, as he tends to do, 
The first deduction I suggest we can draw is that there is no apostolic succession, and you can see the relevance of it at once. So though the apostles themselves do not have the power to appoint apostles, and the number of apostles seems to be restricted to 12, they do have the insight to receive one another as genuine apostles. And so Peter says this very thing with regard to Paul. He speaks of Paul's writing as Scripture. And so we read from 2 Peter, where Peter writes, Our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also, excuse me, the rest of the scriptures. He puts his endorsement on the epistles of Paul as coming directly from God. And Paul's not reluctant to say this very thing of himself. He says, I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. So an apostle had to be a man who had seen the risen Lord in the first place. In the second place, he's a man who's called by Christ Jesus, specifically designated with his task, as Luke wrote, of Saul of Tarsus. He was given a task to speak to Gentiles and kings, right? A third consideration is that an apostle is a man to whom certain powers had been entrusted, and one of these things is that they had the power to work miracles. Now, I want you to note something, and I think you'll remember if you've read the Gospels. There was a time when Jesus appointed 70, and there's a discrepancy, it could be 72, but we're going to call them the 70 disciples. Remember this? They're never named. It's a very short section, Matthew um, chapter 10, I believe. Um, But anyway, he takes the 70. You remember this, right? He takes the 70, sends them out two by two. And he says, go out and do this and preach in this city. And if the city doesn't treat you well, then shake them off like dust and go to the next one, right? And he goes through that. But he didn't give them powers. He didn't give them powers. There's another place in in the Gospels where he sends out the 12 apostles. And he says the very same thing. Go to a city. If they receive you, put my blessing on it. Let it remain there. And he says, and he told them what to bring, you know, one tunic, one cloak, something like that. Um, and he told them what to bring. But with the 12, he gave them powers to rebuke demons. He gave them powers to heal sicknesses and illnesses. We should assume that even perhaps Judas went out with that power and healed sick people in the countryside as evidence that they were of the 12 apostles of Christ. Not the 70, the 12. And so Paul said of himself to the Corinthians when he wrote to them, Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders in mighty deeds. In other words, he's telling them, Remember what I did and the power I exhibited when I was among you. He doesn't list the powers and the things specifically, but he couldn't have written that if they didn't witness those things in him. They knew he was different and had uh, different powers given him by Christ himself. Now, whatever those signs were, the Corinthians were aware of them, or the apostle could not have referred to them. A fourth consideration is that an apostle had the power to impart spiritual gifts to others by the laying on of hands. Now, you see people do that today. That's a fine tradition. I don't know that you actually have the power to emit a gift, or as the apostles did, they could give you the Holy Spirit with the laying on of hands. They had the power to give the Holy Ghost to others, Lloyd-Jones writes. 
and to give certain gifts which are given by the Holy Ghost also, by the laying on of hands. This was another sign of their authority and their commission. I'm quoting from Dr. Lloyd-Jones. But still more important, he says, is the authority that they were given to teach and to lay down doctrine and to establish people in the truth. Friends, I have authority to teach, authority given me by the church, but I have no authority to teach anything new. My gospel is old. It's not new and improved. It's old and needs no improvement. And the churches need to relearn that, I should tell you. But Lloyd-Jones goes on. They have the power to lay down doctrine to establish people in the truth. I'm going to talk, talk about establishing. This is, of course, of vital importance, he writes. Not only that, they were given authority to set the order of the churches. They ordained elders. They appointed presbyters. They decided questions when disputes arose. Matters were sent up to this kind of council of apostles. And they were then in an authoritative position to decide with regard to teaching and to doctrine, and they spoke with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. All that is true of an apostle, he writes. Friends, even the evil spirits knew the difference between an apostle and a regular guy or a rank-and-file saint. They recognized the authority of Christ upon his chosen apostles. You might remember this uh, from the book of Acts, chapter um, I believe it's chapter 19, the seven sons of Siva. Remember, they were sorcerers. They were like this sorcerer family. You know, dad's a sorcerer. You heard the sorcerer's apprentice? They were all apprentices of Mickey Mouse, the, the, uh, the sorcerer, if you've seen the cartoon. But the seven sons of Caesar, they, Siva, not Caesar, Siva, they tried to exercise a man. In other words, cast the demon out of him. Now, this was a pretty tough and stubborn demon, all right? And he didn't want to go. And so they go up to this man who's obviously possessed of an evil spirit because they saw Paul do this. So they thought, well, I'll go do this. I'm going to do exactly what he did. The, the demon will leave. And then we read, and the evil spirit answered through the man, right? And he said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who the hell are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them. By the way, I ad-libbed a little of that. He overpowered them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. <laughs> I would love to have seen that. Um, because presumably Paul's there to set it all straight and say, okay, you said you know me. I'm telling you, get out of the man. On another occasion, there was a man, Elimus. And by the way, this man, Elimus, was also named Jesus. His name was Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus. Okay, so there's your second Jesus in the New Testament. But Elimus, also a sorcerer, sought to turn converts away from the faith. And the apostle didn't like this. And so we read that Saul, right, who is called Paul for the first time in this scripture, Acts chapter 13, I believe, here, he says, Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, Will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. That's power. And that can only be entrusted in some. <laughs> the apostle had the power to know the will of God in the moment, and to pronounce judgment upon those who were frauds. You may remember what Peter said to Ananias, another Ananias, few Ananiases in the New Testament, to Ananias and his wife Sapphira. Remember they concluded, or rather colluded, 
to hold back what they had pledged for the work of the church. Don't lie to God. Don't say, I'm giving so much and not give it. Ananias fell down dead before Peter when he was exposed. Now, no one knew they did this. It came to them by the Holy Spirit. They knew that Ananias and his wife pledged so much to look cool and then didn't come through with it. And so he fell down dead. And then we read this. Then Peter said to Sapphira, because she came in separately, didn't know what happened to Ananias. How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? How would he know this? He said, look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. The church was two new friends to have a lot of hypocrites in it. Had to kind of keep it pure. And the apostles had this power. Now perhaps a last qualification of an apostle is that his teaching, his power, his mission was not received from other men, but it came directly from God. Paul says this very thing. He writes to the Galatians, when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb, in other words, he was called before he was called, if you get my meaning, as we all are. He separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. He received a directive from God. He didn't need permission of the other apostles to be an apostle. And he didn't get his teaching from Peter. In fact, in this very same book, he did a little teaching to Peter. He said, but instead I went to Arabia and returned to Damascus. So he finally made it to Damascus. And he said, then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter. And then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem. Paul did some studying. Even though he was a Pharisee, he did some studying and some meditating and some communing with God. He did not go directly to flesh and blood for their blessing. And so we could surely go on and on about the powers men had that had been called to apostleship. But we should not lose sight of the fact that these men had specific powers for a specific purpose. And that purpose was to establish and propagate the churches through preaching and teaching all those things that Jesus had commanded them to teach. That's nothing less than the Great Commission, right? Matthew 28. Verse 11 says, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. Why? So that you may be established. Friends, in your faith you have to be established. And only doctrine can do that. Doctrine is truth. It's a nickname for truth. It's the conclusions that you come to when you know a number of truths and you, and you coalesce them into a particular doctrine like justification by faith. We come to Christ by faith. There is no other road. So that's the name of one of our doctrines or our doctrinal conclusion about sal- salvation and the road to it. But I've said to you often enough that it was the mission of Paul to go beyond the procuring of personal individual professions of faith. Certainly that's always of concern to any evangelist, and we may say that's the concern with every saint. You want, the the evangelist wants the saint to be converted, but he wants to establish him in his faith. Paul's mission was always to establish churches. I have a somewhat lengthy quotation here from a great missionary to China in the early part of the 20th century, Roland Allen. Um, And I go back to this quotation from time to time when I'm teaching on this subject or the subject of the churches, It's in a book called 
From Jerusalem to Irian Jaya by Ruth Tucker. It's a book Ken gave me many, many years ago, probably 30 years ago, which is The History of Missions. It's a very good book, but at the beginning, the first mission, missionary was Paul. And so Roland Allen makes this observation, and I think it's so poignant for us. He says, in little more than 10 years, St. Paul established the church in four provinces in the empire. That's a pretty big area. 10 years. You know, he had Corinth, Thessalonica, Philippi, right? Um, Rome was getting established, right? There was Colossae and and, and Ephesus. Karen helped me with the list in Ephesus and some of the others. Uh, There was Troas, Hierapolis, um, uh, Laodicea, Colossae were there near each other. So he's establishing all these churches in all these provinces of the empire. This is the Roman Empire we're talking about. And so Roland Allen says that's truly an astonishing fact. And he goes on, that churches should be founded so rapidly, so securely, seems to us today accustomed to the difficulties, the uncertainties, the failures of missionaries, the disastrous relapses. You know, missionaries went out to convert the Muslim or to convert the Hindu, and they got converted. Disastrous relapses of our own missionary work, he says, it seems almost incredible. And so then he writes this, many missionaries in later days have received a larger number of converts than St. Paul. They, they answered the altar call, right? Many have preached over a wider area than he, but none have so established churches. And that's his mission, and that's always been my mission. Establish one church, this church, that I pray goes on long after me. No one established the church like Paul. That was his mission. That's what he did. He didn't just go around getting little disparate people saved all over the place. He gathered them. You know, Whitfield did that. Whitfield was a great preacher. He came to this country. He was the first celebrity in this country before we were pre-colonial times, all right? So he comes over 1730s, 40s, right? And he preaches all over the place and people get saved. And he was very good friends with the two Wesley brothers, John and, and Charles. And uh, the Wesleys and and him traveled around, and they did all this preaching. And the Wesleys were very big in England at the time, and the coal miners and the the what they called the colliers or the collieries at that time. And they went out and they preached the gospel, and these men got saved. And, and Whitfield bemoaned one time. He said, "Wesley did one thing better than me. He corralled his sheep." And John Wesley became the great founder of the Methodist tradition of the Methodist Church. He founded churches where Whitfield really didn't do that. He just gathered uh, saints who were probably, you know, given the fact that it was pre-colonial times, were probably already situated in a local church, right? He would preach in the churches until they didn't like him anymore because a lot of times he'd preach that the ministers may not have been saved and they didn't like that. The danger of an unconverted ministry was a thing written by Jonathan Edwards. And so they, they'd put him out in the woods and fields, but everyone went there to hear him. But corralling the sheep is an important thing. The gathering of the saints. So you see, as we've noted, Paul did not found the Roman church to whom he's writing. Neither did Peter found the church. But his purpose in writing is the same as if he did found the church. It was to establish them with sound doctrine. Friends, it's the New Testament phenomenon that churches may gather that they may hold worship services, that they may appoint leaders and collect tithes. It's also a New Testament phenomenon 
that they may have strayed from their initial course. He says to the Galatians, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you to the gospel of grace. Who has bewitched you, he said to them. They were turning away. That's a New Testament phenomenon. Churches turn away. Why? Because they're not established. They don't know the truths. And if they do, they don't trust those truths came from God. And that's what he's doing. And so it was this apostle's mission to assure that they remain in the calling to which they were called. And that's always a matter of resting upon the essential truths of the Christian faith that we call doctrine. In fact, they called it doctrine. Didache, they called it. Remember the stern warning of the risen Savior to John when he was on Patmos. He said to the church of Pergamos, to the church of Pergamos, he said, I have a few things against you. Friends, I hope Jesus doesn't walk in here and say that to us, but maybe we'll say it for him and we'll investigate ourselves for the things we need reforming, right? I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, to commit sexual immorality. Remember, imagine a teacher coming in the church saying, let's have some more sexual immorality, that'll be good for us. It happened there. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate, repent or else, he says. And the or else goes on or else I'll come and take away your lampstand, things of that nature. Friends, there's doctrine that Jesus hates. He despises it. It's contrary to everything godly, and it destroys the church. And it's the apostle's job. That's why Jesus didn't come and speak to those churches. He went to John and said, you speak to the churches. Then, by the way, he got them off Patmos, and John did just that. It's believed John was the end of his life, uh, not martyred, Except maybe at the very end, but he lived to his old age and was the pastor of the Ephesian church with Timothy. Now, I'm not going to take the time here to note the exact nature of the false doctrines of Balaam or the identity of the Nicolaitans. We'll do that another time. I did that last year about this time when I talked about the seven churches from Revelation. We went into that. But suffice it to say that doctrine, which is nothing less than the things we believe about Christ and the gospel and the nature of salvation and sanctification are of primary importance to Jesus Christ. Not just that you believe, but that you believe what he believes. And so it's Paul's purpose and calling as an apostle of Christ to clarify the essential beliefs of the churches. Friends, this is called establishment. We're established. And as long as the churches of God are established in the truth, so long as the truths they believe go back to the teaching of the true apostles of Christ, they'll be more concerned with the testimony of Christ and the apostles and less concerned with the testimonies of individual men. And so he says... Again, at the end of the book of Romans, he says the same thing. Now to him who is able to establish you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest by the apostles and the prophets. And it's made known to all nations through them. So a simple translation of the apostles' mission is this. Conversion is only the beginning. It's only the beginning. Establishment is the goal. Friends, when someone gets saved, what do you think you're saved for? There's only one thing you're going to do. When you get to heaven, there's only one thing that you're doing here that you're still going to do there, and that's worship God. I don't know if Donnie's going to be a plumber in heaven. Now that I think of it, I hope not. (laughs) 
I hope we don't need plumbing. That's all I'm saying. I don't know what people are going to do. We're not going to need doctors in heaven. We're all going to be healed, right? No more diseases or crying or death, right? You don't need doctors if you don't have death. So we're not going to do a lot of things, but we're going to worship, and we learn to do that here. So if you're saved, you've got to attach yourselves to a church where you can worship God. Oh, but I don't believe in um, organized religion. So see, I have that little problem. How do you, what makes you think that's not sin, that you don't believe in organized religion? So you believe in disorganized religion. Let me tell you, our God's an orderly God. He created the world in seven days, a very orderly way. You go to the um, letter to the first, Corinthi- first letter to the Corinthians, or somewhere around chapter 12, when he says, God determined that all things should be done in order. He's talking about the worship service. Everyone was popping up with the gut tongues and, and you know, trying to show off. And they really had these gifts, right? And they were popping up, doing all these things. And Paul said, that's indecent. He said, how will someone who comes in here not say that you are out of your mind? He says right in the letter. Friends, we're not supposed to do all that. We come to worship God. It isn't about us anymore. We come to worship God. That's what we do. When you're saved, you join the church. Martin Lloyd-Jones, once again, to be converted is not enough. We need to be established and to be built up. This surely was never more necessary than it is today, and that's why it behooves us to study the epistle to the Romans. He loved the epistle to the Romans. By the way, the church just bought, you may have surmised this, by the quotations today, but they just bought Martin Lloyd-Jones's 14-volume set on the book of Romans. 14 volumes on a 16-chapter letter. It's never been more necessary today to read the book of Romans. He goes on to note that the church in our time is much more enamored with personal experience than with personal commitment to establish truth. Oh, guess what happened to me? I I think it's wonderful. I hope you have a phenomenal testimony story. But now join the church and be quiet and take some teaching. That's what we do. We submit to sound doctrine when we come into the church. He goes on to note that the church in our time is more enamored with personal experience than with personal growth. Friends, I know some people been in the church for 50 years and they're still telling the same wonderful story about the beginning, but they don't know anything about the doctrines of Christ. Ken used to say, yeah, I know, I know that, I know that, but what have you done for me lately? You may have been drawn out of some extraordinary circumstances into faith in Christ, but if you've made a genuine profession of faith, then you should be apprised of the fact that it's time to commit yourself to a local church and to submit to the authorities that God has established for the good of all believers. He wrote this very thing to the Ephesians. He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. For what? The equipping of the saints for the work of of ministry, for the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ. That's called establishment, friends. It's also called sanctification. The word in Greek is sterizo. I figured I might as well use it. And sterizo means to fix, to make fast, or to set firm. To establish, friends, is to set a foundation. Friends, I don't know a lot about a lot of things, but I know a lot about foundations. I can tell you a lot about foundations. Tell you a good one from a bad one. Tell you, a good foundation guy from a bad foundation guy. (laughs) It's easy. They're all bad. No, I'm kidding. It supports the rest of the structure. If the foundation's not right, the church can't be built right. There's no pole barn churches. It's all concrete, baby. They knew about that in Rome. They invented concrete twice in history. And so a firm set of doctrinal beliefs keeps the saint from being spiritual children, as Paul said, tossed 
to and fro with every wind of doctrine. Oh, that's what we're believing today? Okay, I believe it. Oh, that's what everyone's believing? I believe that. Friends, that's, he says that's childish. Toss to and fro. You see it all the time. I hate to tell you, I, sometimes I like to turn on preachers on Sunday mornings. Maybe I shouldn't do that because I think it keeps me cynical because I hear so much bad doctrine. I hear so much tossing to and fro. I'm like, what about the essentials of the faith? Every wind, every breeze of truth, in quotes. Friends, apostles were builders. They built something. They set the foundation with Christ. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, Paul said, I have laid the foundation and another builds upon it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Doesn't change, friends. It's the same. Conversions or no conversions, there's no Christianity apart from the gathered church. A single conversion is a wonderful thing, but the gathered church is a glorious thing. And we should make note that every epistle the apostle writes is either to an established church or to pastors of established churches. Who did Paul write to? To the saints who are in Rome, to the saints who are in Corinth, to the saints who are in Philippi with their elders and deacons. That's a church he founded. He knew it was founded. He writes to churches. Friends, if you weren't in those churches, you would have never known these scriptures because they read them aloud and they preached from it as a text. They knew it was scripture. They knew it came from an apostle. If you were in Philippi, you knew what Philippians said because when it got there with Epaphroditus, they read it, right? The only other letter Paul wrote was to Philemon, whose house was host to an established church, right? But he wrote to Titus who was a pastor of churches in Crete. He wrote to Timothy, who was pastor of the Ephesian church. He wrote to churches. That's what he did. That's what epistles are. Peter wrote to the pilgrims of the diaspora. They were, they were spread out. They, they had left because of persecution, right? And they were in the uh, Arabian, not the Arabian Peninsula, but uh, in Turkey, Asia Minor. And he wrote to them and said, gather yourselves together and appoint elders, found the church again, establish. So that's what, they, that's what the apostles did. So the ecclesiology, what do I mean by that? That's the doctrine of the church, the ecclesiology. The doctrine of salvation is called soteriology, right? Soterion means savior. Ecclesia means congregation. (laughs) By the way, church is just another name for congregation. The ecclesiology of the apostles were to procure confessions of faith, lead the new disciple into the gathered flock of God, appoint elders and teachers, and continue teaching to him all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's what Peter wrote. And so to Pastor Titus, Peter, uh, Paul said this. He said, for this reason I left you in Crete. Crete's a little island off the boot of Italy, right? For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. In other words, they dotted the island with churches. And he said, but you have to have elders in churches. Teaching has to continue for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry. There's so much more I would say with regard to Paul's stated intention, with regard to establishing. But I would note one last thing with regard to his qualifications before I close. I would ask you to consider his resume before and after his calling. Here's his resume before. He said this to the Philippians. He said, If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. 
circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So he says, you think you're Jewish? I'm more Jewish than you. But this is what he said later. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant. In stripes above measure. In prisons more frequently. In deaths often. From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeys often. In perils of waters. In perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils at sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides all the other things that come upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Amen. Father, we thank you. For this, O Lord, the written word of God, we thank you for the apostles and that their words have been preserved down through the ages for our edification, even this morning. We pray you by the Holy Spirit who is in us, in the name of Jesus, amen.